is Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. Uh, all right, apparently it's Cheese Week here. First, site director Kerry Paulus sits down with cheese writer Tia Keenan. Tia has a column for the Wall Street Journal called Cheese Wisely. I get it. It's like choose wisely, but cheese wisely. Uh, she contributes to bonappetit.com, and she even has a cheese book called The Art of the Cheese Plate, Pairings, Recipes, Style, Attitudes. I asked Emma, our producer, like, why are we having tea on? Is there a peg? And she's like, because we've always wanted to do a podcast about cheese. And I was like, all right, that makes sense. Uh, Tia talks about how she got into the cheese business, how you might consider building your next cheese plate, and even admits her favorite night cheese, I also had to ask Emma, what is a night cheese? And it's like, oh, that cheese you crave like when you have the munchies and it's late at night. And the, I'm like, oh, that one that you reach into the fridge for. But first, I'm asking a favor of you guys. If you like our podcast, please, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes and leave a comment. Uh, it helps us out a lot. And as always, send us your emails. Let us know what you think of the cast. Give us suggestions for upcoming shows. If you don't like something, you can share that too. Uh, but we love hearing from you, and we definitely take action when you let us know what's up. Our email is bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. All right, let's do this. Here is Carrie and Tia. Tia. Hi. We first met at a cheese tasting group, I'd say maybe about three years ago. Yes, about three years ago. And I remember it was you and several other people and... You guys were all official cheese experts, and I was the sort of cheese enthusiast, I guess. Frankly, too many cheese people in a room is like kind of a nightmare. <laughs> I'm going to be totally honest. So let's back up a second. Yeah. Let's say you're at a cocktail party and you're meeting someone for the first time, and yeah. they say, oh, so what do you do? How, mm -hmm. how do you define your line of work? Do you say, I'm a cheese expert, I'm a cheese writer? I say that I'm a writer whose subject is cheese and that I write about cheese. And then what do people usually ask as the next question? Well, they usually don't ask a question. They usually say, oh, my God, that's the best job. <laughs> I would love to work with cheese. Um, and then the question that they ask is, how did, how did you – how did that happen? Or I didn't know that that was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> totally, uh, which I'm now going to ask you to yeah. answer that question. Um, you know, I I was always a creative person. I thought that I would be a visual artist growing up. I, I when I first started going to college, I went to to art school, and there was like nothing happening at art school in that time. I felt where I at the school where I was, and so I sort of wandered into the journalism department. And it was just an exciting time, you know, to be in the media department. We're talking like 94, 95, the internet was happening. It was just exciting. So I ended up getting a, a journalism degree, went into publishing, hated it. So I thought I'll just get a restaurant job until I can figure out what I'm going to do. I'd never worked in restaurants. My best friend of 30 years were, was working for Miramax at the time. She said, uh, my boss eats a Tribeca Grill every day. I bet you if I call the hostess, I can call the GM, I can get you an interview for a waiter job. So I get a waiter job at Tribeca Grill, which just happened to be during that time and place sort of the epicenter of this dining scene. So so what year are we in now? We're like in 99, okay. 2000. You know, it was a hot restaurant doing 500 covers a night, ton of talented people. I worked with people like Patrick Capiello, who has Rebel. Um, 
and a Pearl and Ash and who does 40 ounce rosé. I mean, him and I were waiters together. I worked with, um, you know, a bunch of people who now are in the Danny Meyer empire. I mean, it, I ended up working in food because I was looking for the exciting creative scene. And at that time, that's where the creative people were. Was there a light bulb cheese moment that was, oh my gosh, this is what I want to do. And it's all because of this cheese. Well, I remember being really turned on by by American cheese and what was happening in American cheese. Um, and that, can you define what you mean by American sure, cheese? Sure, I mean artisan cheese made in, made in the United States. Because at that, you know... It, we're talking, this is like before the Food Network, before food podcasts, <laughs> um, before celebrity chefs. This was a time before all of that, before Whole Foods, before people were into cooking. It was like the time of rice aroni and hamburger helper. So I saw this new thing because I was working at a, a beautiful little restaurant called Fleur de Sel, which was a little Michelin star 28 seat Breton restaurant um, on on 20th Street in the Flatiron. And chef would have me order the cheese. And that was the first time I ever bought cheese as a professional. Mm -hmm. And the retail department was one person and that person was Liz Thorpe. And she, I remember buying Cato Corner Farm cheeses. I remember buying Sweetgrass Dairy cheeses. And then going into the dining rooms and saying to people, I have these great cheeses made in America. And they're like, what? You know, all the only good cheese here is from France. What are you talking about? And at this point, we're talking about I'm only able to even sell artisan cheese to wealthy people in fine dining environments. Um, So I was super... It less so, you know, my turn on cheese was less so like one specific cheese than this whole category that was just new and exciting and beautiful. I mean, if you're used to seeing cheeses that get shipped across the ocean in a boat, and then I'm seeing for the first time cheeses that are being driven over from Connecticut, those are different cheeses. Those are cheeses that have been handled way less you know I think of that like Biggie Small song where he talks about like selling weed you know and he's like cutting the drugs you know and every time someone touches it it gets cut and stomped on I think it's, the it's but, totally the same with cheese but you know it is it's, it's it's similar I mean I you know obviously the French are masters of of, of cheese culture and cheese making but when by the time we get their cheese they have been handled quite a bit so seeing American cheese during that time was seeing cheese that had not passed through a lot of hands it was really beautiful and as someone who had been a visual artist you know I really appreciated just the aesthetic of it too and so I came of age working in cheese or made my transition into working in cheese at the same time that American artisan cheese was just blowing up. And, you know, my big break was um, there was an opening at the Modern, at the Museum of Modern Art, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I really need to prepare for this job because um, because everyone's going to want this job. And, and then so I, like, prepared myself, and I feel like I even probably studied, which is, like, so crazy. And then it turned out that... I was the only one that wanted the job, so they gave it to me. But I feel like if this happened now, like, it would be really stiff competition. I mean, I really think that, you know, if I have any talent, it's just that I 
was able, I was really super obsessively interested in something before before other people were. And so when other people became interested in this thing, I was like ahead of the game. Totally. Let's say a listener also wants to get their hands on some American cheeses and maybe is kind of new to the cheese world and doesn't really know where to start. How would you suggest they start purchasing or like what should they say to their cheesemonger or or their grocery store if they want to try try some cheeses? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I definitely think if if you have the opportunity to engage with a cheesemonger, you start there. A lot of people only have access to cut cut and wrap cheeses at supermarkets like Kroger, Whole Foods. But if there is someone behind the counter who wants to talk to you about cheese, um, you should start there. They're, these are professionals who spend all of their time thinking, talking, tasting cheese. These are people that you want to have a relationship with so that you trust them and they share with you. Um, that being said, we're sort of seeing now this we're kind of in American artisan cheese 2.0 or even 3.0 at this point, where we have what I consider almost these sort of like legacy brands within artisan cheese. These are brands like Cypress Grove, like Vermont Creamery. They're brands that were pioneers in the early days of American artisan cheese, and they've consistently been producing beautiful cheeses. And so I think that those brands are good for a, a good entry point. I totally agree. Yeah. Humboldt Fog, which is made by Cypress Grove, right. was absolutely my gateway cheese. So for those who aren't familiar with Humboldt Fog, it's it's a, a goat cheese that has um, vegetable ash in the middle and this like really delicious, I think, rind on the end and this very sort of tangy cheese paste in the center. Um, and you can get that in a lot of major supermarkets even if you can't get other artisanal cheeses. And so I I don't know why I started buying it, but that was definitely the moment for me that was like, oh my God, what else is out there? And Cypress Grove definitely deserves the credit there. Yeah, so I think Cypress Grove, Vermont Creamery, you know, at this point, Cowgirl Creamery, um, even like Rogue Creamery for blues, um, Point Reyes Creamery. These are all some of the earlier brands that have just really hunkered down and made great cheese consistently for for decades now and so I think that they're good places to start and they're also accessible and that they're widely distributed and available through all levels of of retail. So if you do have the opportunity to talk to a cheesemonger I think one of the most intimidating things about going up to the cheese counter is the vocabulary. It's hard to describe what you want if you haven't tasted a lot of cheeses Mm -hmm. and I think for friends I've seen in this situation, they, they don't really know how to make that leap. And I've seen other people at cheese counters really struggle with that. Mm-hmm. Do you have any practical advice for, for what to say when you're not sure what you want? Well, I think if you're not sure what you want, that that's what you should say. Um, to me, the way to get the best cheese is to be open to having any cheese. Because then you can go to your cheesemonger and you can say, I love all cheese. What are you obsessed with right now and can I have some of that Um, that it really is the way to get the best cheese because cheese is a living breathing thing also so something that was really perfect last week um, may not be really perfect this week Um, often a cheesemonger will have something behind the counter that hasn't even made it to the case yet 
um, that they're tasting through with their peers behind the counter. Um, my, you know, over feeding, I mean, making thousands and thousands of cheese plates over the years and feeding people, those are my favorite people to feed when they're just like, I love all cheese. I trust you. Feed me. What about the opposite if someone's like, I don't like goat cheese or I don't like blue cheese. They're really steadfast, but maybe they're not. They haven't tried a lot of those categories. Mm -hmm. I mean, it depends. Again, like this is a relationship question in a lot of ways. Um, You know, if you are very particular about what you like, then talking to your cheesemonger about certain flavors that turn you on or turn you off and then naming as many cheeses as you can of cheeses that you like should be able you should that should give the cheesemonger a good idea about which direction to lead you in um but you know i would just hope that consumers are always retain that openness to being surprised um when someone comes to me and they say oh I don't like goat cheese I know in this country when they say that it means they don't like supermarket chef yep it means that they've had chef that's been sitting in a cold case for four months um that wasn't a particular great quality to begin with and it's been sitting cryovacked in a log forever um and that they ate that and they didn't like it and so they think they don't like goat cheese Um, So when someone says that to me, like, I'll sometimes give them, like, a hard-aged goat cheese because I think when Americans think of goat cheese, like, they don't even know that that's a category. And then you can give that to someone and they can say, wow, that's really good. And I can say, well, that's goat cheese too. You know, goat cheese is a lot of different things and you had a bad goat cheese. I mean, it would be like – I mean, I was going to use pizza example, but the truth is is that, like, I will house a frozen pizza – but it's just a different category. Like, we should have a different word. Right. It's pizza. like, you know, it's like eating um, an airport hamburger that's been sitting out for seven hours and saying, I don't like hamburgers. Unfortunately, we've been so conditioned in this country to a sort of uniformity um, of availability that we think that all things are uniform. And, and that's just not the case, especially in cheese. There are definitely a few... I don't know if like conversion cheeses are the right term, but mm, I I definitely was a person that wasn't into washed rind cheeses, which are, you know, the very kind of smelly, stinky ones. And I also thought I didn't like blue cheese. And for blue, the one that converted me was definitely a Gorgonzola Dolce. Mm-hmm. Super creamy. It's, it's almost sweet, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very spreadable. And the second I had that, I realized that I was really being closed off to an entire category. Yeah. So you have this cheese that's now been mm. sitting in front of us for about 20 minutes, and, mm-hmm. and the smell is amazing. This is really exciting because I just came back in G- late June from the American, the annual American Cheese Society conference. This conference is the only one of its kind in the cheese business. Um, it's a week long, a week of seminars and tastings and events that people from all over the country come to, and it all. The other component is um, that there's a contest, and over two thousand cheeses are entered, in I think over hundred and eighty categories, and then the winners of those categories get submitted into a best of show category, and so the top prize for this. American Cheese Society award every year is the best of show. 
Um, and this year's winner is what's sitting in front of us. It's Springbrook Farm um, Tarantase Reserve. And it's an Alpine-style raw milk cheese from Vermont. It's made by Springbrook Farm, Farm for City Kids, which is a partnership um, between a nonprofit that brings children from primarily from Boston and New York City to this farm for a week. And the cheese making is part of what they do on this farm. Um, so it's besides being like an incredibly delicious cheese and we can talk about the flavor profiles a little bit. It's also like a feel good story because they're they're doing some really incredible social good. This is cheese that is about the milk, about the land, about the stewardship of that land, about the animals, about the care of that uh, those animals, about the breed of the cows, about the passion and hard work of everyone who touches this cheese, because it's not just the cheesemaker, it's the people who wash and flip the cheeses, it's the people who work in the caves who age the cheeses, it's the people who muck out the stalls of the animals. It's a whole organism. An organism makes a cheese like this. And then actual organisms <laughs> are also making the cheese like this. Um, it's so complex. It has, you know, those wonderful crystals. I mean, when I tasted cheese like this, I just know that the animals had such a diverse, wild diet. So how do judges go about deciding kind of what is the blue ribbon cheese? Mm. Well, I could say I don't know because actually I've never been asked to judge by the American Cheese Society. Though American I have Cheese been Society, if there are any listeners. several times. Tia, she's ready for you. Um, so there's a technical judge. And there's an aesthetic judge, and they judge in pairs. The aesthetic judge is someone like me, someone who's worked in the cheese business sort of on the on the consumer side. And then the technical judge is someone who's worked in the cheese business on the technical side, someone who grades cheese, makes cheese, who understands the science of, of cheese in a deeper way than I do. Um, and so they team up. They have certain criteria they scale those I think this year each team had like seven or something categories that they had to judge and then they average that out and then you get your winner and then they get their winner so best of show has three three winners the first second and third place and this year we're all cheesemakers who really take that holistic approach okay I think it's time where we need to talk about cheese plates in a very serious okay way. okay so right. here's a few like cheese plate scenarios for you. Okay. What's your I'm having company over cheese plate? Like you're having a, a dinner party of let's say six to eight people and you want to start with a cheese plate as people are coming in and getting drinks. You can go a couple of different ways. You can go like three to five cheeses and just go with variety, contrast and texture, contrast and flavor, diversity of milk. So like a fresh cheese, a bloomy cheese, an alpine style cheese, a blue cheese, and I want like names. I want like okay. your. So I'll okay. I'll I'll just say so. I would maybe you know take a, a chev, um, like something from Vermont Creamery, for instance, and then um, maybe um, you know a bloomy from. I mean, who am I loving? Lazy Lady Farm, which is this tiny little place in Vermont, and I just love her. Can you explain what a bloomy cheese is? Sure. A bloomy cheese is often a white rinded cheese. Um, you would know Brie, Camembert. Um, these are younger cheeses. In the United States, they're 
pretty much exclusively pasteurized. Um, they tend to be creamy. They tend to have um, profile like a mushroom, mushroomy profile. Um, you know, a sweet cream, butter, um, grass, lemon sort of light flavors. Those are sort of like the default cheese plate cheese. Like if people aren't trying, they'll probably like throw a kind of whatever wheel of brie on a, on a plate. Yeah, I mean, I think people really yeah. like those cheeses. Yeah. Ironically, that's like my least favorite type of cheese. Um, but so I would mix that up with an Alpine, something like Springbrook Farm Tarantase, maybe a blue cheese, like a Rogue Smoky is always popular. But I want to put something else out there, which right. is that you don't have to have a three cheese plate or a five cheese plate because you can also go the other direction, which is to buy one really amazing cheese. I totally support this, and I know what my cheese is. I'm ready for what this. What is it? If I, it's a Harbison for me. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. That was the third. That was also the best in show in the top three. Because it's amazing cheese. Exactly. So, like, you put one really, really spectacular thing out, and it becomes this communal experience so everyone's eating the same thing in the same way whereas if you put five cheeses out on a cheese plate like one person's well two people are talking one person is eating the blue and the other person is eating the bloomy and they're not like sharing that experience so directly but if you put one amazing amazing cheese out then you've got a room full of people who are all having like the exact same culinary experience and there's just something really beautiful about that. So what would be a few of those kind of showstopper cheeses? I mean, I think Harbison is great. I love like putting out a whole Azeitao, which is a Portuguese sheep's milk, again, like pudding-y type cheese. You know, I wouldn't really do that with like a blue probably. Um, sometimes you come across these like large format um, uh, camemberts. You know, how dope would that be if you like went to a party and you walk over to the app table and there's like a 10 inch wheel of bloomy, sticky, mushroomy. You know, I think sometimes in this country we think like more is more is more, but sometimes less is more. Okay, last question before lightning round. Okay. What is your night cheese? My night cheese is like a naughty cheese that someone quote unquote, air quotes like me, probably like shouldn't be eating. like. I really, really love Havarti dill. I wrote about this for Bon App online. I love horseradish cheddar. Because, like, my night cheese, I'm not breaking into the, like, real. Like, if I have a wheel of Harbison, I'm not breaking into that in my during my ambient munchies. Totally. Okay, so we're going to move on to our lightning round in which there are either or questions. You have to give an answer. Okay. And, like, no, no, like, oh, I don't know. Like, okay. you got you to gotta commit. All right. Okay. Uh, Gorgonzola or Roquefort? Um, Roquefort. Washed rind or bloomy rind? Washed. Mac and cheese or nachos? Mac and cheese. Aged cheddar or aged gouda? Aged cheddar. Marcona almonds or cornichon? Cornichon. Humboldt fog or midnight moon? Oh, I love you, Cypress Grove. I would never want to choose. It's Sophie's choice. Um, Humboldt fog. Really ripe brie or really good parm? Really good parm. Velveeta or Easy Mac? Velveeta, because I've never had Easy Mac. Whoa! <laughs> Last question. We ask this to every single one of our guests. Mm -hmm. Butter or olive oil? It's like my heart is saying olive oil, because I know that's like probably better for it. 
But my palate is like, give me some butter. So who wins? Olive oil. But I'll always finish with butter. Deal. <laughs> Tia, thank you so much for coming on the Bon Appetit Foodcast. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Carla, we've been doing this podcast for like two and a half years, and we've never done mac and cheese. That's weird. Like, what? What? What the heck? It's funny because it's like Bon Appetit existed for decades, and we didn't have a one singular perfect mac and cheese. So it's all sort of part of the same trend, I guess. But we did have like a podcast 35 years ago. <laughs> just that no one listened to it because they didn't know about it. It was called the radio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, we had all these kind of like highfalutin ones or something or what? Yeah, everything had some weird twist. It would be like a Chipotle mac and cheese yeah. or a mac and cheese with bacon or mac and cheese with barbecue chicken. Who knows? I want my mac and cheese as mac and cheese. And then I want some like, you know, some grilled chicken or I want some pulled pork or I want a meatloaf or something. Like separately, you mean? Yes. (laughs) I don't need it in the mac and cheese. That doesn't make mac and cheese better. I think that's for people who eat mac and cheese so often that they're like, oh, I can't give me something besides the same old mac and cheese. It's these places. I'm not even getting it. I know how you like your mac and cheese is actually out of the craft box. And we've talked about this. when I grew up. Yeah. Back in, yeah. It is I would delicious st- I, back in the 80s and I would stir in ground beef and onions and oh. Oh, I can still taste it. I would eat the entire box myself yeah. with like half a pound of ground beef and sauteed onions chopped up, you know, but not like caramelized just till they're like translucent brown ground beef, pour the mac and cheese, already cooked mac and cheese. Oh, my God. What a gourmet. Yeah. Just sit down in front of like and watch Fantasy Island or whatever. Yeah. What a night. Um, <laughs> oh, what a night. OK. So. All right. So we have we have a recipe on bonappetit.com called if you look for it, B.A.'s Best Macaroni and Cheese. Listen, Carl, you know this because I'm an honest guy. Yeah. When I don't like a recipe that we do in the magazine, yeah. someone gets yelled at. Yeah, my phone blows up. Yes, name, <laughs> named Carl Live Music. I love this recipe. I think this this is such, like, this is quintessential, awesome, works every time mac and cheese. Uh, I love it. My nine-year-old loves it. My wife loves it. You bring it to a party, it's a hit. So let's talk about some of, like, the basic components of of what makes a perfect mac and cheese. Uh, and the one thing you wrote in, in an email earlier, which which I was shocked when I made this one or made mac and cheese the first time myself, um, you wrote, also, it will appear to be a ridiculous amount of too thin liquid when you mix it all together, but that's the magic of it actually feeling saucy when done. I made this for the first time, and I was like, there is no way no way. I'm supposed to pour this much milk into the roux thing that I'm making. Yeah. And I was You're like, like I mismeasured. Has what did to be I a mistake. But it's not. It's not. Why? It has to be. So I think that when you talk about the great things about this mac and cheese, we talk about solving problems of like the not great, great mac and mm-hmm. cheeses that we've had. And one of the things about mac and cheese that is so disappointing is when you cut into it and it's like just a solid dry block yeah. of like corrugated cardboard. Blah. Yeah. And so in order for it to stay loose and saucy and feel like, um, you know, like it looks like. What, in that, was, that was me last weekend. Loose and saucy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Were you in a okay? Yeah. That's another story, maybe. Okay, for it to feel kind of stretchy like that, um, you know, like get a cheese pull when yeah, you lift it up. Yeah. It has to be overly liquid at the beginning because inevitably the the noodles are going to absorb some of the sauce while it's baking. It's going to dry out because it's in the oven, evaporating. It's evaporating. Yeah. It's osmosising, and uh, and what you want is for it to feel like. Um, yeah, like it's still got cheese sauce, not sauce. just cheese. Exactly. So, well, let's talk about making that sauce. So, you know, you, you've got the pasta, which we'll get to in a second. That's boiling away. 
but you're making essentially kind of a bechamel or yeah. what are you doing? What's the basic process? Well, so it's a very basic thing. You, you start with onions and some butter and uh, then you add flour to that. Well, and in this in the BA's best recipe, you do uh, onions and a little bit of garlic. So you sort of oh, saute. You sort saute that for fl- that's just for flavor. Just you don't have flavor. to do that, but I think that's what brings a really nice imparts a wonderful complexity of flavor to this recipe. But so you get you get that going if you want, and they have butter and flour together, right? Uh, correct. Which yeah, is, you start the, your onions with like you're yes. starting your onion and garlic with that butter. Yeah. So then you add the flour and you make a roux. But can you, you make, can you smell how good that onions, garlic, and butter are smelling right now? There's no better smell than actually no. for me. It's just like garlic and butter. So you then stir in the flour while it's on the stove still. Yeah, and, and you're and, not. And, and if you've ever made a gumbo or like a stew or a chili where you make a roux. Um, it's the same thing, but you're not taking it to where it gets a, a lot of dark color. Yeah. The purpose of the flour here is to help the sauce thicken, and you want actually a golden roux. So hot tip for you. Mm. The more cooked out the flour is, the less um, thickening power it has. Oh. So in a gumbo, that roux is really about like that deep flavor. And in yeah. mac and cheese, you really it's there as a binder. Yeah, so when you're doing a gumbo, you're really getting it to that peanut butter color, right. which imparts a nice... I said imparts again. I'm going to stop saying imparts. Okay. Um, which imbues it and lends <laughs> it with that sort of toasty, nutty flavor. Right. But here, it's like you're just cooking it to get rid of some of that raw flour flavor. And then you slowly start streaming in hot milk? Yeah, warm milk that okay. has been infused with some thyme. And I'm just looking at yeah. the recipe. Yeah, a little bit of little bit of thyme. You could throw a bay leaf in there. If you don't have it, skip it. But um, it should be warm. If you ha- have cold milk going into your warm roux, that will cause fat um, molecules to, to bind up and seize. And then you'll get lumps. So make sure you're... Your milk is warm. You're, you know who you're your sounding? Your roux is warm. You're, you're sounding like your colleague Claire Saffitz right now. Yeah, well. Busting out all this science on us. We try to be knowledgeable, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Where is that going to get? There's no such thing as science in 2017. Um, okay, so yeah. So so, so it blends, It's and it's not thick. At this point, it's still. Yeah, the, it's the, pretty water. The, I mean, that's like pretty milky. milky. Yeah. Um, and so don't sometimes people, I want to say in the Ina recipe, does she, I want to say maybe add, sometimes people add a little nutmeg. Sure. To you could the, totally yeah. add nutmeg. I think yeah. that's a perfectly yeah. acceptable seasoning. This one has a little bit of cayenne and a little bit of um, mustard powder. Oh, yeah. If you didn't mu- have mustard powder, you could certainly throw a teaspoon of Dijon in there. Yeah. But I like that combination of the mustard and the cheese. Yeah. So I think I, I, what I like about a good mac and cheese is, is if you have, if you have the ratios correct to your yeah. point about how done the pasta is going to be. We'll get to that in a minute. How much liquid you want. It allows you to freestyle a little bit. Like I always add, hit it, hit this with some Cholula. Oh. As I, I, as I have my milky bechamel sort of thing going on. And then sometimes I'll even throw in a little Worcestershire. Yeah, it's Why crazy. Not? You know, it's, I know it's, it's, it's crazy, man. Uh, so then you got the hot sort of milky mixture going. And mm-hmm. then to that, you're you adding just a mess of cheese. Yeah, that's the other thing that it will alarm you. You have to be like, you have to be okay with it. It's a lot of cheese. And yeah. also, I will say this it's really a lot of cheese when I make it because I always double this recipe. There's no, I just am going to say that to our readers. There's no reason to make a single batch of this. Interesting. It, because yeah. it's, it calls for eight ounces of pasta. Just double. That's, just, that's embarrassing. Just do yeah. the box. I could eat eight ounces of pasta. <laughs> I mean, I Easily. Have. Yes. Uh, yeah, so you, and this, what's interesting about when you're grating the cheese, and I, I do, 
I know some people have box graders. I will just use a Cuisinart for I this love with the it's... with the, the grater attachment. Yep. But the volume of grated cheese is always surprising. Like wow. Like, yeah. You get the four block. cups of cheese. I mean, it's like many. So this makes one cup of each Gruyere and. Well, this, no, this is actually three cheddar. cups. It's, well, this yeah. is just three cups. So we, but we if call you double for, it. This is all right. So we call this is interesting. So we call for Fontina, Gruyere, and cheddar. I've used the Fontina before. There are times where I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to double up on the cheddar. Totally. You know, like I said, you can do those things. This is all about more about you flavor You could triple profile. up on the cheddar. Yeah. So you start adding the grated cheese to the hot milk. It start, you're stirring it. You, I always like to stir it until that cheese has sort of fully melted, yes. incorporated. Then I add some more and some more. And finally, you've got this just molten pot of cheesy goodness. So good. And it smells good because you have the Worcestershire. You have the Cholula. <laughs> you have the maybe the little cayenne or whatever in there. If I had a soft pretzel, I would dip it right in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, also, and also the onion and garlic. So this is super fragrant and cheesy. Meanwhile... You're finishing up your pasta. Now, if you're making mac and cheese at home, what kind yeah. of what shape are you going with? Definitely not a little elbow. I just have no patience for those. Because that's too evocative of like your, what you grew like up eating? They're just like slippery and small. Wow. Like I want a little more. I actually, we sh- we photographed this with Cavatappi, which is a- No one like knows a, the cav- You guys say Cavatappi as d- if people I was, know what the heck Cavatappi is. Well, first of all, is. when you're looking at a picture, you're like, I guess that's Cavatappi. But I was about to tell you what it was. I know. Which it's one is as it? if you took a, um, a penne and like- uh-huh. You know, twisted it around, made a coil out of it. So it's got a tube through the middle, but it's oh, a spiral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I like those. I would do anything that had ridges. And I mean, I would. You know what I love? Fusilli. I am a fusilli what? monster. Oh, stop. Fusilli Jerry. Fusilli. Like you mean like pasta salad fusilli? Like no, I mean like fusilli. Yeah, a corkscrew. Oh, okay, I can see how it gets caught in the corkiness of yeah. it, the, the twistiness of it. I always. Okay, I can get with that. I usually go, and we're sort of agreeing with, by, without actually agreeing here. I will go often with penne regatte. So you have the ridges to mm. catch the, the cheesy sauce, but also you want some sort of tube or something where the sauce will go into. Totally. You know? Yeah. Um, and then in terms of doneness, so, so let's say I have some sort of penne regatte. It says cooking time on the box and let's assume the box is right although I'll, on those like imported italian pastas the cooking time is never right I'm i think like, that they, they think yeah i think they think that americans don't know any better so it's like way too long yeah, anyway exactly so all right let's say the cooking time is 11 minutes for this penne regatta for what i would consider if i'm serving this as a regular pasta for like al dente but not crazy al dente that's like what i would cook it at for serving it straight with some tomato sauce how many minutes should i be cooking it for to make mac and cheese with I would start tasting it at about five or six minutes. Really? Yeah. Half the amount of time. Yeah. And the start point- tasting it. I mean, you want it to be almost crunchy. Not crunchy, but like Holy cow. more dente than you would ever <laughs> serve in a bowl. And that's because when it's in the oven with all this sauce, it'll yeah. continue to cook. And you want the, that pasta at the end of the day, you do want the finished product to be al dente, right? You don't want it to be oh, past I, that, do yeah, you? I, I, I don't know. I didn't know I had the option of al dente mac <laughs> and cheese. But you've made this many times. What do you do? I've made it I, too, but I yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe if it's 11 minutes, I take it out at eight or nine minutes. But maybe I want to take it out a minute or two before. Just yeah. It's going to be in the oven for however many minutes we're telling you, for half an hour or something. or Something some, like 20 something minutes. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Like it's, going to get, it's going to keep cooking. You exactly. Know? And the sauce is hot. So it's like hot pasta going into 
hot cheese sauce into a hot oven and then you have to let it rest like this is many opportunities for it to continue to absorb all right well let's talk about all right so time was all right so you got this cheese sauce going easy to make you roux milk cheese got your box of pasta going because we doubled the recipe we then combine the two together in that Let's say that you made the cheese sauce in a big stock pot, so you let's have room. Just, and let's actually say that. Like, yes. Remember. You need room. You need room. Otherwise, you're putting the cheese sauce into the drained pasta pot, which would be okay. Yeah. I mean, just, yeah. So I like, to, I, I like to drain and just add it straight to the cheese sauce. And then what do you like to bake the pasta in? I have one of those oval ceramic you know, baking dishes. Okay, well, let me ask you this. You could do... Like, say, like, there's those kind of, um, like, around, like, 10-inch sort of, uh, almost like you like something you would make. Like a ramekin? Like a no, souffle like a, dish? Well, yeah, like one of those big ones, you right. know, that could be, like, four inches high that maybe if you were to make, like, a um, uh, tiramisu in or something, you know, like a round, yeah, high one, where you would have a high but not too wide mac and cheese. Yeah. Or my mom back in the 70s and 80s would do the 8 by 11, you know, right. Pyrex dish. 9 by 13. 9 by yeah. 13, where it's shallower but wider. Now, my question is, is one better than the other? I mean, it's about surface area on the top mm. and how many servings. So mm. what would worry me about your smaller diameter, higher wall situation mm. is that when you're scooping out of that, I don't know, is... Is everybody going to get enough breadcrumb? Well, that's a good question. You're going deeper on each one. You, it depends. I guess. Do you? What do you cherish more? The breadcrumbs or the moistiness of? Like, I think the. I think the taller, deeper one would would retain the moisture level. But I better. think this recipe has been engineered that that's going to uh, happen. No, I it's like got so much liquid in it already. You don't yeah, have to worry about it. And it doesn't out. bake for that long. Yeah, so it says if bake, it's in, it says bake ten minutes, top with the breadcrumbs, and you do it about another eight to ten. So it's only twenty minutes total. Yeah. All right. So so, so right, in so a I don't deep have to worry about pan, that. you might you know you also want it hot all the way to the middle. Yeah. And, but also the crispy bits. I mean, it's all about the, you know. All right, so I like that. I like the more crispy bottom, sides, top. Crispy's better, and we have enough liquid in this recipe that the, you don't have to worry about the inside drying out. So, breadcrumbs. Breadcrumbs. Mm. So, as you pointed out, this is only in the oven for 15 minutes at, what, 350? Yeah, 350. So, what we found when we were developing this recipe, I remember it very well. There's a lot of mac and cheese in my life for about a month. Um is that the if you just put breadcrumbs on top, season them, whatever, drizzle some oil on them or melted butter, put them on top of this mac and cheese and put it in the oven, you are going to end up with pale, yeah. not that crispy breadcrumbs. Meh. So what it might seem like an extra step, it is very worth it. You toast the breadcrumbs, and we call for panko, and the reason we call for panko is because they're they're kind of bigger and they're coarser and they have nice craggy edges. But if you make your own breadcrumbs, just don't pulse them super fine. Um, and toast that with some of these same aromatics. Season them. They're buttery. Are they buttery? Yeah, so we're, doing, yeah, we're, we're sautéing them in butter in a pan until they take on color. Right. You, can, you can add some herbs. You want to add some thyme or something. And they have thyme. They have parmesan. And then when they come out of the pan – and they cool a little bit, then you mix in some shredded, grated, whatever, Parmesan. Right. You don't have to do that. You can. You but know. then you're you're guaranteed a browned, yes. crisp topping. And mm. they just get better, yes. you know? So I think that's, that's pretty key. And I think it's one of those things that people don't – they might be mad at a recipe because the breadcrumbs are not coming out crisp at the end. And that's really just a factor of they're, they're not going to. Yeah. Just – 
It's just crisp them ahead of time. It, it, it's worth it. Hashtag it is. worth it. Uh, okay, so you got the crispy breadcrumbs. You have the moist interior. Uh, you have the right size pan. You have a medley of cheeses. Medley of cheeses. Um, you know what most of us don't do, Carla? And this happens with variety of dishes. We don't let it rest enough. Yeah. It comes out of the oven and we dig in immediately. And it's 429 degrees. I know. It's molten, sloppy on the plate. That's right. And your cheese sauce is going to be way more liquidy when it's super hot. Yeah. Um, just because it's hot and the it will run more. So you you got to just... Give it, give it five. Give it five to ten. No, it, it, listen, I, I would say give it fifteen. Well, you're you like to rest roasted chickens for like two hours. Well, so that's because <laughs> they actually get better. But it's like it's like lasagna. It's the same thing. You, yeah, it you is. can't rush it. It's no. like it's not worth it. Don't be. It's not. It's not going to. It's not going to be cold in fifteen minutes. It's just. But it's hard when you have people like. I, it's well, ready. you know what? You know what? I, I will say. Maybe I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna come back at you on this one. I, I do think you have to leave lasagna in longer because lasagna is typically in the oven longer. If this is only in the oven for a total of 18 to 20 minutes, maybe it's not as insanely hot as some other sort of baked dishes. I'm just saying time. at a minimum. I would say I would say minutes. I would say 10 minutes. Yeah. I think 10 minutes is safe. No, don't say at least five. I say at least <laughs> 10. Oh my god. Okay. So we just made the best mac and cheese ever. We had a big, let's say we had a big green salad with it, with a nice vinegary vinaigrette. Now, because, Carla, because you made two, you doubled the servings. Yeah. We've got leftovers the next day. Maybe. Depends how many people came over, but yes. Let's just say it's just you and Fernando and the kids. So you got some leftovers. Yeah. What time are you eating those leftovers and how are you eating them? That's a good one. Yeah, that's hard. Like before noon? I know. If the it's last a time I made this, it was a Halloween party, so a bunch of people were over. I feel like we almost finished it, but it was late in- enough in the day that I didn't need to go back that evening. Mm. But when you pack it into the Tupperware, you definitely like have some more bites. You know, when you're putting the leftovers yeah. away. Okay, now well, yeah. I mean, obviously. But yeah. are you are the next morning or lunch are you I I, I like right, I'm going to tell you I'd love to do the fry up right in butter not olive oil because you know what that's just a whole different flavor profile thing and so then you get just that whole like spread it out on the pan yeah get that entire bottom layer not just crispy but like cheesy crispy yeah you know so there's that weird cheesy crunchy you're just like (laughs) oh my god it's not going to be as moist as it was the day before, No, but, but it's it has that cr- whole other dimension. You're <laughs> right. like, oh. It's like the part of the cheese that comes out of a grilled cheese and hits yes, the pan. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's good. It is good. And it's BA's best macaroni and cheese, and you can find it on bonappetit.com. Thank you, Carla. Thank you. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and produced and edited by Emma Wartsman. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Gradies, with additional music by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.